All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 136. Today we're going to be talking about spagyrics. By the way, Jason is with me to do this. Uh, spagyrics is the alchemical art of making medicinal things out of plants. Uh, it was probably part of the forerunner of modern chemistry, and certainly, uh, as far as I can tell, up into heavy use into the 1600s when standard chemistry, it is said, started to replace it. Episodes like this are hard to deliver, and I try to find a way to talk about things that doesn't slam a bunch of minds closed and have people just walk away. I try to figure out a way to deliver them so they'll at least consider them, and part of that is normally it's the more mainstream thinkers that I'm thinking about when I do an episode, but this one, it's the other side that I'm concerned with because we're going to be challenging the layout of the zodiacal signs in the zodiac, or what we've come to call the sky clock, and this has to do lock, stock, and barrel with the plants of our world because it can be shown undeniably that the plants in our world do the dance that is dictated by those heavenly bodies, so-called sun and moon. But anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingrid for episode 136 and talk about spagyrics. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is the podcast, episode 136. I have Jason Lingram with me, and we're going to talk about spagyrics, which is the alchemy of the plant kingdom. And quite possibly, once upon a time, this is how medicines were made straight from the carriers of life essence, which is the plant kingdom. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. How goes it? Well, I've had just about enough of this yo-yoing weather. Louisiana's supposed to be warm. Yeah, we've had a lot of rain, but it's not freezing, so I'm good, man. Um, I'm not a big fan of the really, really cold, but it's been pretty warm so far. I think we had one dusting of snow. Anyhow, um, I don't think we have anything for the intro here, do you? No, I did do that one show with The Plain Truth with Travis, but he isn't ready to release yet. That's all going to be happening soon, but he's going to get you on as well, so we'll announce that when it comes about. Right. I've just been so damn busy lately, and I know he's been asking, so yeah, um, I've agreed um, we'll do an hour or something like that. But uh, as we jump in here, um, I'll let everybody know that I finally, after almost a year of trying, got access to a book that was printed in the 1600s, talk about before the modern edit, and that is a sky atlas. And that will be uh, part of the basis for the first bullet point before we jump into spagyrics here. It was a massive book, um, well, maybe close to a foot and a half to two feet tall. And when you open it, each side of each leaf, big leaves, is the Sky Atlas from way back in the 1600s. When I got my hands on it, I immediately went to the sign of Scorpio and the zodiacal ring. And we'll get into that more in a minute. Uh, but it's it launched a massive thread in the forums of Crow Triple Seven Radio for members, and we've been challenging a lot of things here. And it goes to show you, we take so many things for granted, and when we come to scrutinize them, we're really finding that some things are really not the way we've been told they are. But anyhow, Jason. So before we get started on spagyrics or the alchemy of the plant kingdom, it should be recognized that for any of these old ideas to work at the level they are said to have worked at. The sky clock must be understood and integrated with the work in the same way a seed is not planted in winter, requiring instead, for the most part, planting in spring or warmer months. This understanding has led to the challenging of the current zodiacal divisions of the sky clock in the modern era. For many years, Crow has taken issue with the strange division of signs into months, knowing full well the modern Gregorian calendar is a construct likely geared to commerce. Things really began to fall apart when we proved the equinoxes do not resemble old accounts or modern ideas and announcements that this day, or that one, or goodness knows which one, is actually an equinox. We prove that a day of equal day and night or equinox occurs wholly by location of the observer, showing outright the announcement of equinoxes is false in application and intention. This has led to challenging the zodiac signs. So here we will let Crow explain what has been shown about the one sign in the zodiac that is not a living thing. Libra, the scales. 
Right. So I guess probably some heads are going to explode here. And what I'm saying is, is we're challenged this for good reason. We've proven that the Gregorian calendar is a construct. It has no reflection of nature, the true clock. In other words, when it's noon, the sun is its solar apex for the day. That's noon. It's always been noon. It will always be noon, but that is not what your clock tells you. Your clock randomly tells you it's noon whenever your clock tells you it's noon. And these things are likely um, created and geared so that people can go work for their whole lives and get into the commerce game that we've covered so much. But anyhow, as I got access to this book, I already had an idea that the sign of Libra was problematic. Libra the scales is one of these things that's not like the others, for one. Um, it's the only thing that's not a, a living thing in the Zodiac. The idea of the Zodiac in many usages that you can read from antiquity or supposed antiquity is... It's the sky's effect or relationship to living things, and it's made up of living things with the exception of Libra, which is a hunk of metal, a scale. But as I got my hands on this very old sky atlas, the first thing I did was open up to Scorpio. And sure enough, there was the Libra uh, jammed in between Virgo and Scorpio. And there was another thing that I immediately noticed. If you look at any of the other like illustrations of the half man, half horse, or any of the things people have related to the sky, they're line drawings, and they look like they have antiquity. When you look at the Libra scale on this very old map, which, by the way, is posted in the forum. All the images I took are posted in my forum at crow777radio.com. But when you look at the Libra, it, the whole drawing of it is different. It's like shaded and cross-hatched and not... You couldn't call it a line drawing at all. Completely different. Almost like it's saying, stare at me. I'm different. Notice me. And I already was noticing Libra before I went in and got access to this very old book. And here's why. When you look at the size of the division of the zodiacal signs, they're not constant. And for a clock to work, the distance between one and two needs to be the same distance between two and three. So on and so forth. This is not how the current zodiacal model works. So as I began to look at these ideas, it was very clear to me that Libra was jammed in between two signs. So I went and started taken apart by star names. And there are two stars in the current sign of Libra called Zubanel Shanubi and Zubanel Shamali. Lo and behold, I think it's Arabic, I don't remember now, pretty sure it's old Arabic. What these star names mean is the southern claw of the scorpion and the northern claw of the scorpion. And then as we began to challenge this and rip it apart, we removed Libra, gave the scorpion back his claws, which also in the ancient map, it looked like someone had jammed the scorpion's claws in. They were all stubby. And they were, because they should be going all the way out to the to the two stars I just mentioned in Libra. So when we did this, we found a few things. Suddenly, there are many ways you can measure the sky. Just let me put that out there. But one of the measurements that brings Scorpio to roughly 45 degrees of sky, which matches roughly what Virgo is. So there it is. Two faces of the clock are now pretty close to equal. Um, there's so much more that's going on in the forum. We're also challenging time um, using stars to try to figure out is a year, when we're told it's a year, has a year really passed? And what we're finding is that's not even correct. And for people who have followed, you know this all started with the equinoxes when every fall or spring we wake up and the television says, hey, today's the equinox. Well, it's not. And we proved it. Not only did we prove it, we proved that it's wholly dependent on where the observer is and we prove that there are actually places a few hundred miles apart where one place gets an equinox and another doesn't. So what I'm pointing out here is the zodiac was changed. Um, there is no doubt in my mind. Where it goes from here, a little early to say, um, but it all started with the sign of Libra, and I guess I'll leave it there for now, Jason. Now, this is a work in progress, but it has very serious consequences, and I'd just like to point that out to everyone. So if anyone's interested to join in and help out with the research, this is going on every day in the forum at Crow 777 Radio. Right. There's a lot of very, very bright people. We've got engineers. We've got retired people who had professional degrees, um, some, some very sharp minds in there tackling all these things. And I think it's an hour or two we'll begin to show that a second appears to be 0.3 
respectively off, which accumulates to something like uh, over a day in a year and a, a hundred days in a hundred years or something like that, but we'll get there. Anyone who wants to take part can come get into the forum for members over at Crow 777 Radio. It's fascinating. Images from these very old sky atlases are posted. All the reasoning and research is posted in maybe one of the longest threads we've ever had there. It's all very interesting. Uh, but anyhow, now let's get into spagyrics or the alchemy of the plant kingdom. I believe we're going to open up with a quote from Paracelsus. Uh, for anyone who's not aware, Paracelsus was one of the best-known Western alchemical minds, um, and his name is said to mean greater or equal to somebody named Celsus, who is another alchemist even in the dimmer recesses of time. So there's all that, Jason. Therefore, learn alchemium, otherwise known as spagyria, which teaches you to separate the false from the true. So, you know, you read these old things and they seem kind of mystical and this, that, and the other thing. But I'll tell you what, uh, I know something of spagyrics and this is not wrong, uh, is what I would say. And what's cool about the time we live in is there are a lot of people who were degreed and trained in modern chemistry who are now becoming spagyrists themselves. And with that modern combination, we are finally getting books and other things we can get our hands on short of doing a YouTube search and getting maybe mostly what I see on YouTube is lesser forms. I'm not even sure I'd call it spagyrics. It's something like spagyrics, but go ahead, Jason. Spagyrics, or the word spagyria, is made from two Greek words, spoa, S-P-O-A, which means to draw out, to divide, and agiro, A-G-E-I-R-O, to gather, to bind, to join. It is said that these two concepts are the foundation of all alchemical work, hence the old saying, solve et coagula et habibus magisterum, which translates as dissolve and bind, and you will have magistry. So again, you hear that translation, dissolve and bind, and you will have magistry, and it seems like some mythical thing from the, you know, the, the ages of yore, but it really does truly reflect um, some of what you see going on in, uh, in spagyrics or the alchemy of plants. Though we will focus on the alchemy of the plant kingdom called spagyrics, it is said that all alchemical works can be divided into three stages. One, separation. Two, purification, three, cohobation, or the recombination called the chemical wedding. These are very old ideas, and probably, as I've said so many times, once upon a time, uh, there was an era when plants made medicines, and the medicines were not designed to treat a symptom. They were literally designed to heal, and it was all in time with what part of the year you were in, down to the hour, down to the minute, and as we get in here in a minute, we'll make a comparison to maybe modern pharmaceuticals and how that type of so-called medicine is made. The alchemy of the plant kingdom, called spagyrics, employs the above-listed three-stage process, as is true in all alchemy, in order to increase and unbind or release medicinal or curative powers held in plants which are known to be the carriers of life essence. One should keep in mind that many of the modern chemical-based so-called medicines are based on plants, but in the modern chemistry of pharmaceuticals, usually only the first stage of the described process is employed, the breaking apart. No purification and no recombination. And actually, to be fair about this, it's not just that they don't do the purification or the alchemical marriage or, you know, the recombination, as it's called. Um, they're dealing a lot of times in synthetics. In other words, they go out to a jungle somewhere, find a plant that's supposed to be medicinal, and then they synthesize it. So it's not the same thing at all. And we will mention this later, but keep in mind Dr. Emoto, who showed everyone the human intention could be embedded, embedded in liquid. So I would ask, what's the difference between a plant in nature creating some compound or some part of its being and then someone with chemicals synthesizing what they call a molecular identical you know replacement for that is there a difference i would suggest hell yes there's a difference as we get into the topic of spagyrics or alchemy of the plant kingdom it needs to be stated outright that the making of gold has no relation to the true alchemist who would consider this practice as vulgar alchemy missing the point entirely. The idea of true alchemy is that as you apply procedures to make 
Say an elixir. You're learning how to apply the same procedures to yourself as a human being striving to lift or exalt yourself into a higher condition of being, not only in understanding but in reality as well. So this echoes back to the the quote from Paracelsus. This is the difference. So here you are, literally in like a lab environment. In the modern era, you would have beakers and you know alembics and all these things for distillation.、Um, so it would look a bit like a modern lab. But you see, you're not just concerned with what you're doing inside that alembic. With plant material, or whether you're fermenting, or whatever you're doing within your process, you're also learning how to substitute false from true. You're also learning how to take a thing made in nature and exalt it to its highest potential, and at the same time reflecting that back to yourself as a human being. If I explain that at all very well, Jason. <laughs> For anyone interested in alchemy as a topic of study, which includes plant, animal, and mineral kingdoms, one of the big names you will come across is Paracelsus. He is said to have lived from 1493 until 1541 and has been responsible for amazing medicines, among other things. His real name is said to be Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, and his alchemy name Paracelsus is said to mean equal to. Or greater than Celsius, which alludes to another alchemist thought of as great in a dimmer recess of time. Let's warn that his writings are tough for modern minds, though. Many of the books seem to assume a certain level of understanding, but it is also stated that constant study of the writings will illuminate. A modern book that was used for much of this episode to ensure accuracy is called Spagyrics, and it is authored by Manfred Junius. It is an eye-opener to say the least, and easy for modern minds to understand. This book even takes the time to show modern chemistry ideas and lab equipment as they can be used in the spagyric processes. So again, the book that I guess I'm recommending here that I used to validate as my third source is probably the best best source that I had. It's called Spagyrics. The author is called Manfred Junius, and anyone listening is probably figuring out that that's an assumed name.、Um, I guess there's something with alchemists when they get to a certain level, they go give themselves a Latin-based name <laughs> because that's pretty much what we see. Main point here is this book is mind-bogglingly good.、Um, it you know anyone would be Blown away. One of the first steps in spagyrics is called God. I can't think of it. It's basically the cremation of the plant matter. So you're burning a thing down to dust, you know. And you'd be thinking that's carbon now or whatever. Modern science has taught you, but that's not the case at all. And it's laid out, and the processes are shown, and it's all described very well. So if anyone's interested in this, that would be the place to start for my part. Spagyrics is said to be a hermetic art. And it can be shown that many parts of the world used the spagyric method of medicinal preparation. China, India, and Egypt are to have all made important contributions to the plant-based art. It is also said that there are many close parallels in Indian and Chinese practices. Spagyric practices also traveled from the Muslim world into India and are stated to be based back to old Greek arts. In short, from most of the research that I've done, it's not easy to nail down. But as far as I can tell,、um, from the Arab nations or the Muslim world,、um, alchemy that was much old, older than that, even by then,、uh, apparently made it into Spain and then into the Spanish universities. I think that's probably the likely way that it came to the West. But I'll say right now. Uh, in the second hour, we're going to show that there are actually labs doing this now,、um, and one of them's in the United States. I think a couple of them are in Germany、um, that are actually making、uh, medicinal things from spagyrics, and、uh, we'll give the information on how those can be found. Today, most of what is known about spagyrics comes to us from Egypt, where it is claimed to be part of the Hermetic tradition that was practiced there by royalty and priests. It is said to have been against the law for these arts to be written down or taught to the public at large, and that all transmission of this medicinal art was mouth to ear. This once again sounds like mystery school stuff, doesn't it? Exactly.、Um, it sounds like that the people who had power were hiding this art,、uh, whether there was a good reason to do so or not. I can't be the judge of that.、Uh, certainly, there are some bits of knowledge in this world that probably shouldn't be handed out to everybody randomly, but. 
it's not hard to imagine that this bullet point is true if you read Paracelsus. Um, he's not giving away anything for free. There's a lot of riddles and hints and all kinds of things going on, um, even to the point where it is stated in one of the main Paracelsus manu- or books uh, that an alchemist is even not shown where the trail begins. They have to find that on their own. So there's all that. Western alchemy in general is said to have come to the West from Arabs who transmitted theoretical and practical alchemy into Europe where it was then merged with Christianity. Some sources cite the path of alchemy to the West as coming from Arabia into the universities of Spain. Right, here's where a lot of heads will explode. We've shown endlessly uh, how much of the sky clock and other things is encoded into biblical scripture from the Western world or Christianity. And this research that we did backed it again, um, showing that when alchemy finally did make it into Europe, through Spain most likely, as far as I can tell, it was immediately merged into Christianity and then slowly replaced um, by by Christianity ideas and by chemi- uh, chemistry, chemistry be, uh, leaning to a hyper-materialism uh, when compared to alchemical procedures. By the way, if I recall correctly, that is the same path that the number zero took. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd forgotten, but right as you were starting to say it, I recalled exactly. Um, one of these things is just like the other. There is a marked difference between spagyric and non-spagyric plant medicines and remedies. Non-spagyric decoctions, tinctures, and infusions use, partly, the medicinal elements of the plant they were derived from. A true spagyric process is said to open the plant by means of its own process, which derives much stronger medicinal or curative powers. Paracelsus is quoted as having said in his book Paragranum, The third foundation upon which medicine rests is alchemy. If a physician does not have good ability and experience in it, His art is in vain. If this is true, this would make one wonder about the current state of modern medicine and drugs, which have been made devoid of any natural concern. So one of the big issues we're going to face when we do an episode like this is most people coming to listen are going to have a preconceived idea of what alchemy is. So maybe I can frame it like this. When we're talking about alchemy in this way, we're talking about people who didn't have a 7-Eleven back in the day to go pick up anything, and they were using nature to make everything. And what the claim is here is that certain people who were alchemists called spagyrists took plant matter and made amazing medicines that were wholly natural and you can see by some of the language here it's said to open the plant by means of its own process which derives a much stronger medicinal curative powers and this is wholly i guess in the modern age we'd call it natural organic all of that no non no man-made things being introduced here even to the point when they need alcohol they drive it from the plant and i'm pretty sure few people listening would understand that from the spagyric standpoint, the spirit of every plant in this world is ethyl alcohol, which should give you some insight when you walk into your liquor store why every bottle of hard ethyl alcohol says spirits on it. That goes back to alchemy. In the book Spagyrics, a clever observation is made to demonstrate that analysis can never lead to complete perception. The observation is meant to show that spagyric methods can reach a higher level of effect and mastery by understanding a whole of nature and not just parts of a given thing. In the observation, it is shown that modern science has never been able to uncover the secrets of the violin makers from Cremona. The achievements of violin makers like Stradivari and Guarneri del Gesù are unattainable in the modern era due to science employing examination of the parts, like varnish or soundboard, etc., but not the whole. This correlates to science using the solvent idea, but ignoring the coagula which is demonstrated in spagyric methods. The assertion of this observation is that the master violin makers understood and employed natural ideas about sound and instruments made from natural materials as a whole, but what is more, This mastery encompasses a knowing that cannot be analyzed piecemeal and without total understanding. Hence, it is not possible to make violins of the highest known quality without this understanding which is held in old alchemical principles. 
to me, this is a huge proof. You know, you, you read about these things, and while I do have some some experience with spagyrics, I'm by no means a master, so you're always looking for ways to validate it. And to me, this is kind of proof in the pudding. Here we are in the modern era with all this technology we can bring to bear, and yet no one can make a violin up to the quality of, say, Stradivarius. Um, and it's known, and it's admittable. Why is that? Well, this is the whole idea about the mastery of looking at nature as a whole and understanding something that can't quite be examined or described. I think that's what we're talking about here. And so when you consider how much better an old Stradivarius is than the best-made violin of the day, um, now consider what the medicine from a similar process might have been. This also makes me wonder if some of the early guitar builders the ones that were doing this by hand, also had something in mind that just isn't being replicated by modern machinists. For instance, people always talk about how amazing the old Stratocasters and Telecasters and Les Pauls were, but there's just something missing in today's world. Right. I, I don't think there's any doubt. As a matter of fact, Jason, we both play guitars. It's cited over and over how great um, you know, what's that, the band song they pulled into Nazareth? What's the guitar shop there in Nazareth? I can't Think of it. Is it Martin? Um, I think it's Pennsylvania. Mar is yeah, yeah, Martin guitars. Mm -hmm. Right. So when the band is saying, "I pulled into Nazareth," they're not talking about the Holy Land. They're talking about going to Martin Guitars, who is regularly cited over and over, along with old Gibsons and other makers, as Jason mentioned, that there was a certain way the inside of an acoustic guitar was framed, and it went up to the modern era. Now, in the modern era, we're starting to see more people figure out more way to frames. But Jason's point is valid. Um, if we go back in time, why is it that this super old guitar is so valued for its sound? What's going on there? How come we can't just use a computer and all the things we have at our disposal and scan it with a laser and do all these other things and replicate it? Well, there's a reason, and that's what this is all about. Well, to be perfectly honest why I brought that up, I have a very old Les Paul that's probably from the late 50s. I got it from a luthier and had it rebuilt because it was stripped out and pretty jacked over. But right now, that is the nicest playing guitar I have ever picked up and ever plugged in. And I've compared it to very expensive guitars in my local mega guitar store, and mine wins every time. You know, I used to be really into mandolins, and the ones I really liked were too expensive. I could never afford them, like the F-Bodies and the other ones with the beautiful scrolling. Um, but I noticed something big time. They sell all these mandolins that are in an affordable range, and they're kind of like just mass-produced. But these other ones are handmade that are so expensive. And if you play one next to the other, you can absolutely hear the difference between a craftsman who handmade an F-style mandolin or something like that and these other mandolins that are just being pumped out uh, one after the other. There's an absolute difference. And that points to the mastery of the craftsman, doesn't it? Absolutely. To continue with what my guitar is, not only was it built probably by hand way back in the 50s, it was put back together and repaired and all of the things that needed to go into it by one man who really knew his art. So there's definitely something to all of this. There's a reason, uh, you know, someone who works on a guitar has a special name. It's called a luthier. Um, this, is, this was true of nearly any um, craft craftsman position you could hold coming through time, there was a special designation for it. The idea there being is that this group of people will eventually or currently have masters of the craft. And that's basically what we're talking about here. Masters of holistic, natural ideas. In other words, not using anything in this world that nature isn't handing them, which is a bit of an oxymoron because I suppose it could be argued that every synthetic chemical originates somehow with nature. But I think, I think you understand my point. As is true of all alchemical methods, spagyrics adheres to the three philosophical principles known to be essential carriers of medicinal or curative powers. Mercury, sulfur, and salt are considered the three essentials, but should not be confused with like terms used in modern chemistry. Spagyrics employs time-honored methods by which these elements of a plant are separated, purified, and then recombined and in doing so, in the same way violin makers once achieved a level of perfection that is unknown today, the medical alchemist was said to achieve a like idea with medicines derived from natural plants, a process of alchemy called spagyrics, 
Once again, we should point out that modern drug makers using chemistry usually employ the separation or solvase step, very rarely employing the other two philosophical principles of purification and then recombining or chemical wetting. And for the last time, there's a far cry from taking a natural plant and driving something from it and then using chemicals to synthesize it in a lab, at least from my point of view, Jason. It should be noted that modern spagyric practitioners credit modern chemistry with a host of science-based abilities synonymous with the modern era. Being able to weigh or identify very specific amounts is a good example, as is the improvement in laboratory gear, like glassware of a dizzying variety, that is very useful to the modern chemist or spagyric student. You will also find that many modern authors writing about spagyrics are well-versed in modern chemistry, even holding degrees in some cases. During the research for this episode, Crow found an assertion by a modern practitioner that chemistry will hit a wall at some point, which will require a modern chemist to begin to recognize the value of older alchemical ideas in order to further the field of modern chemistry. There are even hints that this is already starting to happen. The idea of transmutation is one good example. This now, a word used in modern chemistry, though there are accounts of a time when this word was taboo, and so the idea that it conveys. So, the tail end of this is basically talking about the word transmutation, which most people would probably associate with alchemy anyhow. Um, I use it in all my episode images um, to make the assertion that right now the world mind is, is being transmuted into fantasy by the misuse of alchemical ideas, not for the betterment of people. But the idea of transmutation, transmutation here, um, and this is tough, I researched this hard, but it appears that not too, too long ago, um, and I believe me, it's getting harder to use the internet in any way that matters. So if you're not holding a book that will help, you're doing the best you can. Um, possibly not too many decades ago, the idea of transmutation in chemistry was pretty much taboo or unacceptable on some level, where now uh, the word is actually used. And uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. I'm really starting to wonder at this point if Google is making individual profiles on people using its search engine. Because I can jump over to another one and get such drastic results at this point. I'm really getting very suspicious about all of this. Well, it's, of course it is. That's that's the goal, isn't it? You know, to have data on everybody and it doesn't require people anymore. Uh, I was just watching a show where a lawyer came out of law school and he realized um, all this work I'm doing, I could automate it with a computer. And so as he began to do that in his new employment, he realized that his billable hours were going down drastically because he'd automated so much of what they did. And it was indistinguishable from what a human being did. This is a law you know, legal documents we're talking about here. So this guy bails and starts his own company, um, showing outright that we're doing this with, you know, artificial intelligence. So don't be fooled for a second. I do the same thing, Jason. I'll jump over to DuckDuckGo. And while it's not quite as an efficient or good a search engine, it does pro uh, provide a, a huge array of things that Google ain't given back. Um, and this is a prime example, trying to track the word transmutation through chemistry, um, maybe in the early 30s. Not an easy thing to do online anymore. Modern science and chemistry accepts three kinds of nuclear manipulation or change. Fission, fusion, and transmutation. According to mainstream accounts, those three ideas could be defined as follows. Fission would be the same as splitting, where one nuclei is split into two. Fusion is opposite in a way as two or more nuclei are joined together, which is said to result in a heavier nucleus. Transmutation would mean transformation, and it is easy to find the use of the word transformation more usually used in chemistry than transmutation, with all likelihood. Science view transmutation as having to do with the disintegrating of a radioactive element. Science also states that any element can be more radioactive by bombarding it with alpha particles or neutrons. The stated outcome of this is the creation of a radioactive isotope. An alchemical view of transmutation states it is identical with all transformations of elements. 
So just to be perfectly blunt, the idea of an element in alchemy is wholly a different and more reasonable thing from my point of view, common sense, than what chemistry currently accepts. And what you will notice here is the idea of transmutation was all tied up in radioactive things. How much work have Jason and I done on, like, nuclear bombs? Hint, hint, hint. Just saying here. Accepting the scientific meaning of transmutation led to a huge split in the way science views the transmutation idea as compared to alchemists. For science, the definition of an element is, one of many possible descriptions, an element is a substance that is made entirely from one type of atom. For example, the element hydrogen is made from atoms containing a single proton and a single electron. All isotopes of a particular element have the same number of protons, but have a different number of neutrons. An element cannot be divided by chemical means. Here's the big division between what I consider the old common sense ways based in nature and the new complex science ways. Um, this is about change, isn't it? You're going to state an element is an element and one of the ultimate statements made. And believe me, when you look up what makes an element, you'll get a lot of versions to choose from. An element cannot be divided by chemical means. That pretty means it's like it's in stasis, right? It's unchanging. Well, alchemy views the world in the same way I do. There's one thing that we know for certain about this world, and it's change. And it does not matter if you are a hunk of lead, a rock, a leaf, or a cloud. Every one of those things is going to dissolve into something else. It's just a matter of time. For the cloud, it'll be quickly. For the lump of lead, much longer. But they are not static by any means. And that's my problem uh, with the idea being put here forward about what an element is, which I don't accept from the modern point of view. And by the way, the, the older point of view is not really even in the same ballpark when you're talking about elements. It's more of a philosophical idea. But go ahead, Jason. The older alchemical idea of transmutation is more like a state of being, as alchemy, as well as Crow, do not recognize any stability in material found in nature. In the natural world, the one undeniable constant is change, and this may well be the underlying principle by which Crow conducts his life. This idea can be used to show the illusion of 3D existence. Logically, we can work out that only a thing with permanence could be truly regarded as having actual existence in reality. Here is where change shows the way. We can also logically work out that a rock and a cloud will undergo the very same change, and while the cloud will dissolve quickly, the rock will do the same over a longer period of time, showing them both to be mere illusions. This mindset is far away from any modern science idea with regard to transmutation and elements. It's night and day, to be blunt about it. What modern science is, and it's become a bit of a religion, um, but setting that aside, what modern science is is hypermaterialism. And in that hypermaterialism, there's this idea of elements which are basically static, unchanging, um, that kind of idea. And that flies in the face of what I can observe in the real world. And as I began to grow up and look at other methods, I found that alchemy, spagyrosis, many other types of natural science rightly showed that we go out and we see a tree. And from our point of view, it appears to be real, but we can logically work out that tree is an illusion because it has no permanence. I'll leave it there for now. It is important to note that transmutation is a scientifically proven fact. Unfortunately, this will lead to a discussion on hydrogen by way of the Big Bang, which is provable nonsense and violates the laws of thermodynamics. Let us just say that science has one view of transmutation and alchemy another. Do we need to talk about which idea makes common sense and which idea seems almost religion-bound? Maybe we can just take a moment to agree to disagree and possibly consider that there might be a better way than is currently commonly accepted. And by the way, that better way was one time the main game in town. Getting back to spagyrics, it is good to understand some basic ideas which, as fate would have it, match verbatim the current push in our world for organic, naturally made foods. The preparation of spagyric remedies require that only healthy medicinal plants are used. They must be grown without chemical fertilizers or any chemicals at all. It is best if fresh 
spring water is used in the growing of said plants. Lastly, a true spagyrist will understand what aspects of nature relate to what plant, which in the modern era means understanding the sky clock. In hour two, we will break down the classification of some plants and their so-called rulers. It is also important to know which day, hour, and season to harvest and process these medicinal plants. This is more than just a chemistry procedure tuned to nature. It is a philosophy as well, holding the idea that only a human being has the ability to refine elements of nature in this way, to include exalting the produced remedy to levels beyond mere chemistry, for lack of a better term. So here's where we lose a lot of people because they say, "Oh, this is astrological nonsense." So I again and again point over. First of all, the zodiac is not hokum; it's probably jacked up, and we're challenging that now. But it's how we place the sun. The sun is what gives us the seasons, and this idea taken to absurd levels just to prove the point was made in the beginning. Does a farmer plant his seed in December? No, he doesn't. Won't grow. That's winter time. He needs to wait for spring. What tells him it's spring? The sky clock tells him it's spring. That's an absurd arrangement of ideas to make very plain the idea being expressed here. But、um, people need to open their minds a little and understand that the only real clock we have is above our heads: the sun and the moon. And all those stars—that's that's the ultimate arbiter of time here. And there is not a plant in this world that is not playing to the song being sung from those heavenly bodies or so-called heavenly bodies. And I would further point out that the sun in June is not the sun in December, and that when you go out in your garden this summer in the morning, that rosemary plant or that. Sunflower is doing a wholly different set of things in the first hour of light than it is doing at midday or the last hours of the day, and these are provable facts to make the point. So there's all that. There should be another point that should be very obvious to any regular listeners here, and that's that the weight epidemic that really kicked into high gear in the '80s and definitely all the way up to today is pretty much a direct result. Of just how much the food system is jacked up in Western culture, the way they produce things is so far from the natural way, and of course, it's going to have a direct effect on the human body. Yeah, a good example of that is how many times have you heard somebody say, "I'm eating too many empty calories." What the hell is an empty calorie? Does nature provide empty calories? Maybe I should research before I ask that question. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe maybe there is somewhere in nature. But I'm just pointing out that yeah, you know, so many of the foods we eat are are a far cry from going out into the world and picking an orange, or even if you're a person who eats meat, hunting something and eating it. Far cry from those days. Well, I would think anything pre 20th century would be much more akin to the natural way to do things. People growing their own food and following the seasons and all that, then compared to the massive agriculture today, which is just God only knows what they're doing to stuff. Well, we we kind of do know what people like Monsanto are doing. They're spraying Roundup on everything, but and they're whatever genetically modifying actually means, which we'll have to go at. But but here here's my point: an episode like we're doing now. Um, if I'd have done this episode three or four years ago, a lot of minds would have closed. But you see, the time is right right now. How many people out there are more concerned with getting organic foods that haven't been sprayed with chemicals? Well, that's why what we're talking about here matter, ma- matters, because this is the forerunner of the age when chemicals and synthetic things became the bane of existence. You know, back in the twenties, everybody wasn't watching their household dog get covered with cancer tumors and die. Which is damn common these days. Not to mention the number of human beings that get some form of cancer and die. Prior to like the 30s and 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 the 20s, this was a whole different ballpark. And what's the difference? The difference, for the most part, is the amount of chemicals we're exposed to, the production of processed foods, and these things. So I would just point out, this episode is wholly in step with anyone who has any concern for eating natural or organic foods or these types of ideas. And of course, this ties directly in with the Gerson method you're always bringing up as well. That's a key point, Jason. So, how many times have I stated that Gerson cured cancer?、Um, and they did it clinically, by the way. And then the laws were changed three months after they announced it. And right now,、uh, the guy who invented it, Max Gerson, was poisoned. Someone poisoned him,、um, and his daughter took over. She has to run their clinic in Tijuana. 
south of San Diego across the Mexican border because she has the gall to treat cancer successfully with apple juice, carrot juice, lettuce. There's more to it than that. But my point here would be the Gerson method is recognizing that plants are the carriers of life essence and they're putting it to good use along with a very specific nutrition set, which brings every cell back to peak performance. But that is not even a spagyric process. And anyone who looks into this will see the difference. So the potential in spagyrics in my mind is, is amazing. Who knows how amazing it could be? Hopefully, we'll get a chance to see in, in the modern era, hopefully. According to acceptable accounts, alchemy and spagyrics were still in common, heavy use up into what we currently call the 17th century or the 1600s. It is stated that this is the time when materialism in science began to take over methods and the minds of the era. This is also the era in which chemistry emerged with the idea that static, unchanging elements that could not be chemically divided are the basis of our world. The key here is the recognition of materialism, which science is and has become all the more so in the modern age, almost to a religious fervor. We generally call this scientism. Okay, so I'm going to gonna put down a, po a maybe here for anyone who is very learned in chemistry. I did the best I could here to vet this out. I'm not 100% sure that it was the 1600s when the elemental, unchanging elemental idea emerged. I'm not 100% sure about that. I had a hard time finding different sources saying different things, but certainly it was the 1600s when the common practice of alchemy or spagyrics or the natural sciences were beginning to be supplanted by ideas like chemistry, and for that matter, religion, um, which also co-opted many of these natural ideas. So there's all that, Jason. All is not lost for the modern mind interested in the spagyric methods. From the book Spagyrics by Manfred M. Junius, there are three recommendations for the modern seeker that exist up into the modern time, for now. The first is Saluna Laboratory, which still produces many spagyric remedies. It was founded in 1921 by Alexander von Bernus, which was once in Stuttgart, but is now located at Castle Donaumünster in Donauwörth. His book is called Alchemy und Heilkunst and is also recommended. The second is the Phoenix Laboratory in Bandorf, which still follows the methods of Paracelsus. And the third is in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is called Paracelsus College, founded by Freiter Albertus, also known as Dr. Albert Rydell. The current college, issued from the Paracelsus Research Society and the aforementioned founder, is considered one of the best respected alchemists in our time. So this gives me hope. There's people still to this day doing these things, holding up these methods, and there is a whole philosophical kind of idea behind this. In other words, like if you went out and met a craftsman who was wholly dedicated to his craft, you will sense there's almost a spiritual connection to doing the best he can. You know, you see this a lot in Japan from any person producing almost anything, how important it is for them to make it the best they can. Um, and that's some of what's being kept alive here. And we should also state that there is no no argument anywhere that alchemy is the pre-runner to modern chemistry. Um, but there it is. These are places that are still doing it. If people have an interest, they can actually have a place to look at or to go to. Have you directly looked into any of these uh, institutions? I've checked out the Salt Lake City like three times now. I've meant to do a reach out and see what kind of books and writings and other things I might get at. And I was also thinking about asking, um, can just anyone attend these types of ideas? But you know me, Jason, I'm always slammed to the wall, and it's probably sitting on a note card in front of me 100 deep. As we get into some basic philosophical ideas held within alchemy and spagyrics, Let's quote a 16th century engraving with an inscription in Latin that instructs the seeker thusly. Pray, read, 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 read. Once again, work, and you will find. There is more to the human condition and the art of alchemy than meets the eye or the modern mind. The modern idea of praying is very tied to religious ideas of the modern age, so consider what is being worked with and what is being sought after. Let nature be your baseline. Let it stand as common sense. 
These are the types of ideas, if you start to read Paracelsus or any of the older things that we've mentioned here, these are the sorts of things that will be said. And there is no separating the spiritual intent of these individuals who are doing these natural practices from their craft, if you want to call it a craft, or whatever they're doing, the art of what they're doing. And there are still societies where we find this kind of almost spiritual connection to whatever it is they're doing, the weaver weaving, um, the bricklayer laying, you know, anything where you find that individual that is so dedicated to the art they are engaged in that there is an absolute spiritual connection, and this is the idea of that Stradivarius violin. There was a higher human aspect to produce an instrument like that, and we can't produce it right now. Well, why is that? I would suggest that what's being pointed out in this bullet point is exactly the reason why this is. And for the last point we'll be able to get to in hour one, to an alchemical mind, the entirety of material in this world is due to the perfect interaction of the three philosophical principles of mercury, sulfur, and salt. Any of the existing things inside our world are also sometimes called mixta or mixtures. All metal in this mindset is just a mixture, and for that matter, so is a plant. In short, these principles for the basis of every chemical element. Also, a reminder that mercury, sulfur, and salt are not to be confused with modern terminology and chemistry that use these words, but in a way... That means something altogether different. Right. Uh, as we get into hour two here, we're going to absolutely break apart what these philosophical principles, namely mercury, sulfur, and salt, mean. And this is what we're talking about when chemistry comes at the idea of there's 120, however many supposed elements there. Um, in the alchemical world, there's four elements, but it's not a thing. It's a philosophical idea that encompasses a certain aspect of nature. And in a way, you could almost imagine that was how the Stradivarius was made. It wasn't about the soundboard being carved perfectly this way or that way. It was the philosophical idea of how every part of the Stradivarius violin went together. But an hour or two, it's mind-bending when you start to get into the depth of natural science knowledge that is wrapped up in these three philosophical principles. Anyhow, that brings episode 136 hour one to a close. We hope that you'll come and see us all over at Crow Triple Seven Radio for the second hour where we can talk about anything in the free speech zone and it costs about a cup of coffee per month. And uh, by the way, in joining, you are supporting the cost to run that free speech zone. Anyhow, there it is. Hope to see you all over at Crow Triple Seven Radio.com. Cheers.